Welcome to the School of Travels podcast. I'm your host, Becky Gillespie, and each week I bring you stories of how travel can truly change your life if you take the chance to get out on the road and step out of your comfort zone. My guests also share travel tips and lessons they've learned along the way, which I hope inspires you to let travel be your teacher. Hello, listeners. Welcome back to the School of Travels podcast. I hope you're ready to go on an adventure today with me as I interview Curtin, who I met last November on Nomad Cruise 10. As you will soon discover in this podcast, Curtin does not have your typical approach to travel. In fact, Curtin refers to his travel lifestyle as 15 years of traveling without a plan. And he kind of accidentally discovered travel as he started living a number of different lives in very diverse parts of the world. For Curtin, anything is possible, and the word should doesn't exist. His candid humor, creativity, and spontaneity are infectious, and I know you're going to love his story. Without further ado, here's Curtin. Welcome to episode 40. That's right. Finally made it to the big 4-0 of the School of Travels podcast. Today, I am here with, honestly, one of the funniest people I have met. Don't say that. Curtin. Curtin. You only have one name, Curtin. Well, I have one so far. Welcome to the podcast. I'm still young. You got to explain this one name thing you've got going on. But yes, thank you for joining me on the School of Travels podcast. Well, maybe, you know, maybe I told you my full name and you just weren't listening. You ever think of that? (laughs) What is your full name? It might be your fault (laughs) after all these years. Oh. So uh, my family name is Curtin, C-U-R-T-I-N. And my parents wanted to name me either a one-syllable name or a three-syllable name because they thought it would go well with the two-syllable Curtin. And they were going to pick George. That was going to be my name. But for some reason, I was a month late and uh, they scrapped George and they picked Gregory my middle name is West. So Gregory West Curtin. All right. Boom, there it is. Okay. Not I thought George. I thought they were going to go with just Greg. So I don't know. How do you feel well, about the fact that they went with Gregory? That's, that's what my dad calls me because his name is Curtin and it would be kind of weird. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Hey, little Curtin. But why, why do people <laughs> just up? call you Curtin? Because when I met you, people are like, this is Curtin. What's, what's up with yeah, that? Yeah. I think it's a. Uh, it's probably because that's what I told them my name was. <laughs> so that's what they call. But the uh, the reason the reason that happened was over the years I played sports, where they they call you by your last name, and I went to a small school, and one of the uh, the kids' name was Greg Martins. Shout out to Greg Martins if you're listening. Uh, they called us Greg C and Greg M, which is terrible. Nobody wants yeah, to be known as bad. Greg C. Like, hey, Becky G. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> Gross. <laughs> I don't like that. Um, yeah, and it was it was more memorable. Uh, I switched schools in 19, I don't know, 98 or something. And when I went to my new school, uh, which had, you know, hundreds of kids instead of just 40 in my class, I didn't just want to be Chris or Mark or Greg. Um you know, we had a kid named like Alfonso and that was a cool name. And so I was like, oh, just call me Curtin. And they were like, yeah, that sounds nice. So just went with it. When I was in Japan, Gulegoli was what they wanted to call me. And I was like, no, <laughs> that's not happening. That is such a mouthful, so I, especially in Japan. I went with, 
Katansan. And I was like, yeah, that sounds dangerous and cool. Man. Ah, sounds like Katana. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Who wants to be a Golegoli when you could be a Katana? You know? Very cool. Very cool. All right. So where are you from originally, Curtin? So much I don't know. Um, the passport I was just looking at had a big eagle on it. So I could be Polish, Russian, German, who knows. Uh, but I am American. I'm from the United States of America. Uh, I've lived in 11 U.S. cities. I think I've lived in the U.S. about 20, maybe 24 years, 25 years of my life. 23, 25, I don't know. The first 20 years was pretty typical. Uh, you know, you're born, divorced parents, moved to a bunch of different schools. And then when I was 20, I just started uh, doing weird stuff. Quit university, moved to England, um, got fired. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Why did you quit university? Um, I don't know. It's, it's, it's a good <laughs> question. Uh, I, I guess I was always doing well in school. I was a year ahead in math. And people always told me like, oh, you have a, a great career ahead of you. And I was like, okay, cool. I believe you. <laughs> um, and I had like an engineering scholarship at Georgia Tech. And I went to Georgia Tech. And then all of a sudden, like I wasn't the best anymore. You know, kids were coming in from Pakistan and South Korea on scholarships uh, to like learn engineering. And they were studying their asses off. And I was just sitting here like playing rugby and uh, enjoying my friends and the freedom that comes with college. And so after two years, I was like, I'm not doing very well in engineering compared to these other kids. I don't really know if I want to be an engineer. And one of the rugby guys from Wales, he invited me to, uh, to move to the UK with him and live with his mother. How did you get into rugby, by the way? I feel like that's not a very common American sport. It's not. Although in the 19 uh, teens and 20s, we were the best in the world. We won the gold medal in 1920, 1924 Olympics. And that was the last time it was in the Olympics until Rio uh, 2016. So that's pretty crazy. Uh, America was <laughs> top stuff. Um, but yeah, I had never heard of the sport. Uh, I knew what a rugby shirt was, but I'd never seen the sport. My first uh, experience on a university campus as a student, I was actually uh, a walk-on on the Georgia Tech football team, American football. And I quit. I was like, you know what? This is a new part of my life. And I was kind of playing sports for, you know, just because I always had played, played sports. And my dad really liked football. So I was like trying to impress him. But I wasn't feeling it. And I was like, I quit. So I just walked off the field and I had my cleats or my boots around my neck. And as I was walking across campus back to my dorm, uh, like closing one chapter of my life, I saw a guy who went to my high school the year before uh, walking towards me. And I was like, uh, we called him Dickhead because he had a scar across the top of his, his head. And we're like, I was like, hey, Dickhead, like, wow, man, I haven't seen you in a year. And he went to the same school, right? And so we were catching up and he had his cleats around his neck too. I'm like, what are you doing? And he's like, I'm going to rugby practice. And he, uh, I was like, oh, I just quit the football team. <laughs> and so he invited me to rugby and he was like, here, we'll catch up during, during training. So that was Thursday. 
let's see, I think it's August 26th, uh, 2004. And then two days later, I played my first rugby game <laughs> on a Saturday. I got my ass kicked, but I fell in love with it. And uh, that was my jam. So I, I quit school and moved to Europe to play rugby in, uh, in the UK. Oh, wow. So yeah, like you said, you weren't feeling engineering anymore, but you were playing rugby in college. But then how did, so you just, you quit school at that point, And then did you know you were going to go over and play rugby when you quit? Yeah, yeah, that was kind of the whole point was to continue playing at a higher level. And then hopefully things like a job and education and all that would just work itself out. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Somehow. Which it didn't. Oh. Of really? But did you how long did you play in the UK? How did that go? Being the American. I was the only American they'd ever had at the club and uh, felt really great. Every time I did something good, it was magnified because they had such low expectations of me. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, one of my rugby teammates got me a job at the uh, local nuclear power plant, which is the largest in the UK, um, called Sellafield. And because I had done some engineering graphics packages, uh, I was just helping them decommission the plant. Unfortunately, the guy that hired me kind of, he put me in the back door you know, just, oh, yeah, start working here and, you know, we'll, we'll pay you. And uh, and HR uh, didn't have my work visa on file. Uh, that's because I didn't have a work visa. <laughs> so it's basically just a tourist working in a nuclear power plant. <laughs> and so I was asked to leave the country for 30 days. And um, that's when I went to Berlin uh, for the World Cup and Love Parade in 2006. And that's what really opened my eyes to a whole new world uh, of like possibilities, different cultures and different ways of living and, you know, punks with gauges in their ears and middle-aged women with blue hair. And I was like, wow. <laughs> and that's what really kind of kicked me off this, this life that I've had since then, the last uh, 14 years or so. Um, but yeah, I, I never would have gone to Europe without rugby and I never would have gone to Berlin without getting kicked out. So that's, wow. that's kind of how it all started. You said you went to Germany and then did you move to Germany at that point? No, I was living in a tent <laughs> uh, in the city, which is kind of cool. They had an old like YMCA that had closed and the field and the swimming pool had been converted into a campsite and they drained the pool and they made it into a bar. <laughs> so you could climb down these stairs and drink, which is really challenging because if you get drunk in a hole, it's really hard to climb out. You know? like, it's really obvious to see who's wasted because they just like stay in the hole and they sleep in the pool. <laughs> it was so fun you had, times. you had gone over for the parade, but then you had stayed there in a tent and then we're thinking. Yeah, I was on a tight budget. It was weird. I didn't take any cards with me, like bank cards. I just took cash because that's a smart idea, right? And so I actually ran out of money um, and like lived on the street for a bit. But whatever. <laughs> you make mistakes when you're young. Wow. What was that? What was that like? Uh, it was different than I expected. You know, when you pass a homeless person on the street, you think of them as like a bum, like some low life that, you know, is it doesn't get it. And then when you're the one asking for money, you're like, oh, come on. Like, it's just it's just for temporary. You know, it's just a. Just a little, I need a little bit to get a meal, you know, a little, just a little bit. 
and you know who has money. You see the guy with the nice phone and like the new shoes and you're like, come on, man, give me a euro. I need one euro. He just like, like spits on you. You're like, ah. <laughs> yeah, it was great to, uh, to see how, you know, how other people live. Um, and that was one of the experiences. But uh, it's fascinating to realize that, you know, we all make decisions based on what hand we're dealt. Um, and some people work harder than others to get out of it. But uh, it, you'd be amazed to, to realize how close you are to all these different scenarios. Like you're a moment away from being hospitalized and having no insurance. You're a moment away from being homeless. You're a moment away from being deported. That's <laughs> like, oh, yeah. Yeah. And it sounds like you've lived a lot of these different paths and experienced them. Yeah, that's what my family's afraid of. I always have a, I tell them I have a jail plan. So in case I go to jail for 10 years, I have a plan of like making the best of it and, you know, working out and reading and studying languages, making little prison groups, like little, you know, <laughs> social clubs, <laughs> like weekly meetings and stuff. And they're like, please don't go to prison <laughs> just to try it out. Oh, man. So, okay, you're in the UK, then you go to Germany. Where did you end up next? I, I will say this, I, I've crossed uh, 313 borders. I've been keeping track just because I was bored one day and I wrote them all down. But basically the, 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 the key points, I guess, were once I failed Europe the first time, I went back to the US and then I studied in Austria and London and then back to the US. So I did, I've been over five years in Asia, two years Africa, um, few years in Europe and then just visiting Australia, South America. But it's weird. Like when I go back to the US, it's it's different. Like I lived in Idaho, which is like this empty Western expanse. Um, and then I lived in New York, which is of course, you know, busy and really international. And then living in Atlanta for five years, everything was, it was like one third Latino, one third black, one third white. It was kind of cool. It's like a nice mix. Yeah. And that was the first time I was really exposed to an entire party full of Puerto Ricans and Mexicans and Dominicans. And they were teaching us how to dance in styles that their grandparents had taught them. And then you'd go to like a rap, you know, an album release party. And it was like 95% black, you know, uh, attendees. I was one of like three white people. And it's like, oh, cool. Like, this is what it feels like to to you know uh be new to something and to to like observe like i wasn't the center of attention i was there to learn you know about this music or this kind of dance or, or this and that and it was such a great feeling um, and i didn't realize i could have that overseas until i started traveling but that's that's what i love about living overseas is that i'm always learning i never feel like i have all the answers I never feel comfortable. Um, I'm always, you know, ready to do something new or ready to, you know, go somewhere else <laughs> if I if it's you know too dangerous or if I don't like it or, and I love that. It's like uh, it's like always having your shoes tied, ready for action. Let's talk a little bit about China because I know you've spent quite a bit of time there, and you'd mentioned that to me when we met on the Nomad Cruise. Which listeners, we haven't said that's actually where we met back in November. So yeah, let's talk about China because I've only been there a couple of times. Check out the China, the Chinese <laughs> chicken. Have a drumstick and it brings. Watch next chicken. files with no lights on. Get his nails on. Get his nails on. Like Garrison, <laughs> Portland, get it. 
Yeah, that was weird. I don't know why they wrote that song, but I'm glad they did. Yeah, it's 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 going to live on much longer than we are. Yeah, so um, I, I moved to China because of a spam email. Do go on. <clears throat> what? Um, I didn't. Yeah, when I moved there, people were like, oh, do you love Chinese culture? Do you love kung fu movies? And I was like, uh, not really. <laughs> Just, I was uh, I was living in uh, Boston after graduation. So you did graduate from university. I finally did. I went to I went to six schools and finally graduated. But my girlfriend was donating eggs, and so she had doctor's appointments in New York. And I would I would take her to New York, and I was looking for work in Boston and New York as well. When we broke up, uh, I couldn't find a job, and I got a spam email saying fly to China round trip for like you know five hundred dollars or something. And I was like, wow, maybe if I go to China for a month and make some contacts, I can come back to New York and try to leverage those contacts and get a job in finance, which is what I had uh, studied in school. And, uh, and so that was the idea. So I flew to Shanghai, but eight days later, I got hired and I just just never came back. <laughs> I, got, I got a work visa this time. So I was working legally and I just stayed in China for like a year and a half. And uh, yeah, that's what started it all. What did you do in China for work? Uh, it was pretty typical. I just uh, I taught English at one of the large schools uh, there for adults. And then I got sick of it uh, after the honeymoon period, which er you feel like a king if you're in China because you're a native English speaker. Uh, people treat you like, pff, you know, you're some amazing gift to the world. And I would I would go into these nightclubs with flip flops and shorts, and there was a dress code, but I didn't have to follow it. And nobody was allowed on stage except staff. But I would get on stage and just start dancing to the music, and everybody liked it. And they would invite you to their table and give you free whiskey, and then you know you'd say thank you, and then you'd leave, and <laughs> like no cover charge. Uh, no stage permission, you know, didn't pay for drinks. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it was nuts. My friend said it was like being a, a beautiful woman. <laughs> like, I was like, oh, yeah, I could, I could dig this. <laughs> which, cool. which city was this in China? Uh, Wuxi. Uh, it was about 6 million people at the time in Jiangsu province, just north of Shanghai. But uh, oh, wow. now it's much bigger. Now it has a metro system and all that. But but yeah, it was it was crazy. But you get sick of it after a while. You realize that you don't deserve any of this attention, and so I stopped being an, uh, an English teacher and I joined a, a powdered metallurgy consulting firm, uh, which was a <laughs> new industry at the time. <laughs> yeah, so you know, like plastic injection molding, where you just like you spray some goop into a machine and then it hardens. So they had that same technology for metal. You would you would have powdered metal. And you would uh, inject kind of a hot goo, right? And then you would uh, squeeze it into this mold. And then you'd have to sinter it. And it would shrink a little bit as it hardened into this perfect shape. We were putting together the global supply chain for this industry. And we were the only consulting firm in Asia. So it's really fun. Got to fly from like Japan to India to Europe to the Middle East. And uh, it was nuts. <laughs> Oh, wow. You had to be learning so many skills in the meantime, like dealing with all these different businessmen. Yeah, it was it was weird because I was still learning Chinese as well. 
So our company was four people and we would deal with Chinese folks and I would have to like struggle with my Chinese. And then we would meet a Japanese group at a Shanghai hotel and I would have to, you know, switch over to my, uh, oh, you know, dozi yoroshiku, watashi wa meshi desu. Like all these, you know, I, just, I took Japan for a semester at, in university. Uh, and then my boss wanted me in Europe. So I went to his dad's house in Germany and I borrowed the family car and I drove it around Europe making sales runs in like Romania, Slovakia, France. And I would sleep in the car. And then put on deodorant and like <laughs> try to flatten my shirt out and go into a meeting. And some of these companies were worth, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. And I was like, they probably don't know I'm sleeping in the car. <laughs> you know, like it was, oh my gosh. It was a great mix. Again, experience, right? Like I, I couldn't just demand a hotel room, like, oh, I'm an important businessman, because I knew I wasn't. I was just uh, a guy struggling to put together a global supply chain for in a very ambitious little company in China. And it was so fun because, you know, you, um, I was supposed to be at a meeting in Munich and the guy didn't answer my, my email or my phone call. So instead of staying in Munich, I just put in Liechtenstein on the GPS and I was like, I want to go to Liechtenstein. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's over here somewhere. And, uh, you know, a couple hours later, I'm in Liechtenstein having a pizza and i'm like hell yeah <laughs> like, i love so this job amazing <laughs> so it's a yeah well, i think i think people are too afraid to do stuff in the world um and they're making their own rules like th that hurt them like oh i can't do this because this is what's supposed to happen like but no one else knows that like no one else knows that those are your fears so if you just do stuff a lot of times you can just pretend like you had a good reason to do it and people will just go along with it. Like, oh yeah, okay. Because <laughs> they don't know. <laughs> so it's like none of us really know what's going on. So whoever pretends like they know what's happening usually gets gets to do more things, which is quite nice. Yeah. It sounds like you're a fantastic example of that. <laughs> Pretending to know what's going on. <laughs> the life that you've led so far and the story that you have presented. <laughs> But, but China really helps with that because uh, it, the Chinese, uh, a, a lot of other Americans said this as well, and Australians and, and Europeans, they felt like China was the land of opportunity. Not that it's a perfect place, but that it gives you a lot of opportunity, <laughs> right? If you want to be on television, if you want to start your own company, if you want to uh, you know, be a, a whitewater kayaker, if you want to like do all this stuff, maybe it's not the best place to start an NGO, but, <laughs> but you know, tons of these things, you, you can do them in China and you can get a lot of momentum very quickly because the sheer size and all the connections that people have. So, it, you know, being a foreigner, if you speak decent Chinese, oh, it's, it's amazing. Uh, it's amazing. So I think that really helped my, my self-esteem and my vision by realizing what was possible with a little bit of effort in China. Um, so when you go to a place like Uganda or Brazil or Italy, you can see something and say, this isn't good enough. I'm going to make it better. I'm going to create something. And people are like, oh, wow. Like, 
oh, we agree with you. I'm like, hell yeah. Like, <laughs> like I know it's not an original idea, but I'm going to be the one who does it. Uh, and that feels really good to, to kind of give voice to something that everyone's thinking. And then they kind of start following you. Um, and then they make it happen. You can kind of use the crowd to make things happen. I think we need more people that have the, the courage to, to come out and say stuff. Um, I don't know why they don't. Maybe, maybe they think that they're all alone or, or something, but they're not. So. I completely agree. It sounds like it's an education on the road. This is called the School of Travels. Like Travel has taught you so much by being in all these different situations and environments. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of what school is supposed to be. Right when they talk about history, they can't just say, "Oh, Louis the Sixteenth, you know, built a house." They have to tell you like what were the available materials, and you know how many men did he have, and you know was France a safe place? They're supposed to like build the environment and then teach you a lesson inside of that environment. Well, travel's the best way to do that because the environment is there, <laughs> you know. Uh, people are speaking French around you. The weather's different. How did you learn Chinese, by the way? Did you studied it before? So actually, my first year, I was pretty crap. I just learned, you know, 10 or 20 words because um, I could speak English at my job. But as soon as I took the consulting job, I started to actually practice. Um, and I, I paid a friend of mine to practice with me a couple hours a week. That didn't really work. I went back to China the next year uh, for another year and a half. And that's when I really learned Chinese. Um, I took a class. I paid to take a class at an actual office. And I paid a lot of money. Well, a lot for my, <laughs> from my perspective. I paid like $100 <laughs> I was like, for, for this, uh, for this like office class. And they, they gave me a book that they had made themselves. And that was awesome because to me, Chinese was like a puzzle. You know, it's like a math puzzle. And if you figured out the symbols and the meanings, you could put them together in different ways to make different words. And that was super cool. I never knew that that's, you know, what the language was like. Um, and then I could actually read some Japanese as well, uh, which is cool. <laughs> so I was like, oh, uh, I would go back and look at all my, my Japanese notes from the one class I took. And I could say, oh, I don't know how to say this word in Japanese, but I know the meaning. Um, How many hours a day were you learning Chinese when you went to the school? Uh, oh, the school, I would only do the school like once a week for an hour. But the best way to learn it uh, for, from, you know, from my uh, experience was I did about 20 minutes a day of writing. So I would learn a new uh, style, uh, uh, like a, a new grammar trick. Like if you want to make a comparison, um, you... You put this word and then the word be, and then another word that you want to compare it to, and then you put the adjective after it. So like me, be, you, tall. And like that means I'm taller than you. I'm like, oh, okay, cool. So I would I would use that grammar structure and then I would I would write all these different things like uh, the frog is greener than the house and the car is faster than the skateboard and all these things. And that's the best way for me to learn it. So I would just do 20 or 25 minutes a day. That's all it really took. Um, it was cool. If I had put in a couple hours, I probably would have been a flipping genius or something. Yeah. So like six months later, you're like, I get this now. 
can do this. I can do business deals. Yeah, and sales calls. And you're you're surrounded with so many characters. Um, I used a free app called Pleco, and so I could draw a character with my finger, or take a picture of it, or type in the word, or you know, uh, any different input method. And so, anytime you were sitting on the bus or sitting at a restaurant, you could just look around and just type in characters and practice and study and and you know work on things. Um, speaking and listening were difficult because everyone has different accent and dialect. And even if you speak perfect Chinese, just because you're a foreigner, people will not understand you. It's like they have a, <laughs> a bias that you're going to say something wrong. So it just comes out <laughs> gibberish to them. You, you, you could definitely record yourself saying something in Chinese. And then you could say it in real life and they won't understand you. And then you can say like, oh, here's my Chinese friend saying it. And then you play the recording of your voice and they'll be like, oh, now I get it. And I'm like, that was me. <laughs> that was totally me. Well, thank you for sharing the process. I'm sure that people were curious how, how somebody just goes to China with no background in the language and gets going with sales calls and like going around Europe doing business for the company. Well, again, we, we, we believe in too many rules that don't actually exist. Like, I thought you needed to speak French to be in France or Chinese to be in China. But if you just have confidence and just walk in, like, I went to a job interview and I started speaking English to the, you know, the person and they would speak English back to me and they were like, uh, how is your Chinese? Is it fluent? And I would say, no, but I'm great for this job. <laughs> And just like force them to kick you out, you know, like make it really hard for them to say no to you. <laughs> and sometimes they do kick you out, you know, which is fine. That's fair. But a lot of times they'll they'll find work for you. They'll be like, oh, well, okay. <laughs> I guess you could help out with these people. And I'm like, yes, I'll start Monday. <laughs> so I love this. It's been a, it's been a really weird, uh, weird world. But um. I feel that it, it's almost a fake it till you make it. Like I didn't really belong in China, but after five years, you actually do know so much more about it than the average person. So now when like we're doing this coronavirus thing, a lot of Americans are, are judging the Chinese, uh, you know, like, oh, should they have, uh, you know, should they have warned us about the virus earlier? Uh, did they did they do this wrong? Did they do that? Why why are they doing this? But everyone's judging China based on their own local system of government, right? They don't understand that in China, politicians' jobs aren't to be popular. They're not they're not trying to be elected. They're not trying to be friendly. Local politicians are trying to have good numbers, right? Like the government has these these metrics. Uh, whether it's education or crop production or uh, corruption or technology use. And every little district tries to meet these numbers. And they're always competing with neighboring provinces and, and, and cities and stuff like that. So if corona is eradicated in this province, then the neighboring provinces should try really hard to get those numbers down as well. And if that means they don't count all of the cases then they don't count all the cases. But there, you have to understand what's motivating people to do things. 
And it, it's just so sad that like pe people aren't willing to listen to another point of view. It's either, you know, black and white. You're either for China or you're against China. I'm like, no, like what, what is China? China is not a, just one object that, that, you know, is always in one direction, you know, full steam. China changes direction. The U S changes direction. So it, it's tough growing up in the U S living in, having lived in China and Europe and, you know, seeing the middle East and living in Africa, you see these different things happening and you, you try to explain to people like, it's not that simple. Like, you, like the people voted in Uganda for a president, but the election was uh, corrupt. You know, the, the numbers weren't correct. So you could say it was a democratic election, but, the result was wrong. <laughs> so is that better than China where they don't vote? No, I would rather have China than a, a obvious corrupt <laughs> democracy. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about Uganda because is that that's where you spent most of your time when you were living in Africa. Is that right? Yeah, we were based in Uganda and then my company had offices in Tanzania, Kenya, Rwanda, and we would travel around East Africa for um, the trucking. We had a trucking business um, from the port in Mombasa, but I was living in uh, Uganda. Yeah. How did you get to Uganda after all this time <laughs> in Europe and Asia? Interesting story again. I was in Shanghai 2014, and I met a Chinese girl at a cafe, and we talked for five hours, and it was, I guess it was like a date. It's kind of like a date. We didn't kiss or anything, but we were talking about each other and our possible future and whatnot. And I asked her on a date for that Saturday. She said yes. And when I, I uh, sent her a message on Saturday, I was like, where can I pick you up? And she was like, oh, I was kidding. We cannot go on a date. <laughs> and she's like, I live in Uganda. I'm like, what? Because, you know, <laughs> yeah. When you meet a Chinese girl in China, you expect that she lives in China. And turns out she was just home visiting her mother. And this girl actually lived in Uganda. So she made a joke. She said, if you want to date me, you've got to come here. And so kind of <laughs> just to, to kind of to like, you know, call her bluff. I, uh, I packed a bag and I moved to Uganda. Wait, what? <laughs> you, yeah. you actually moved yeah. to Uganda? I moved there. I didn't know anybody, just her. Like and a week later, or no, no. It's, we we. This is like a like six weeks or maybe eight weeks because I had I <laughs> oh, had to six like okay six weeks. <laughs> I had to like get out of my apartment. I had to quit my jobs. Um, I had to buy a ticket. I had to get a visa. You know, like all these things. But I told her on Skype. I was like, "Hey, I'm I'm coming," and she was like, kind of excited, I guess. And then we had a call, and she missed a call. And I was like, where were you? She was like, oh, I was out with some guys. And I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> like, if I, if I fly to Uganda, like, you have to date me because I'm not going to, I'm not going to like, I'm not going to. That gonna, sounds very threatening. <laughs> you know, like, I, if she doesn't want to date me, she can just tell me, don't come. You know, like, okay, that's fine. But I don't want to fly there and be like boyfriend number seven. <laughs> you <know>? Right. right. <laughs> so I, I, I go there. And um, the funny thing is, I was landing at about 4 p.m. on a Friday, and she worked until about 7 p.m. So I had found this internations party 
that started at five. And I was like, hey, maybe I can do some networking. I can look for a job during the meeting. And then when she gets off work, she can join me at the meeting, you know, at seven. So I told her this and she got really upset with me. And she was like, you made plans without me. I'm like, well, you're going to be at work. <laughs> like, I got to do something for three hours. I might as well go to this, you know, meeting. And she was like, I don't want to see you. I'm upset with you. I'm like, okay. And so I didn't see her my first night. And I got wasted with these internations people. And I had left my bag uh, at the restaurant. And we went out to a bar. And when the bar closed, I tried to go back to the restaurant, but they had closed the gate. And a lot of things in Uganda have walls around them with barbed wire and, you know, all these fences and stuff. So I was a little bit drunk and I needed to get in to get my bag at the restaurant. It's everything I owned. It's my, it's my first night in the continent of Africa and I don't have any money in my pocket. I don't have a phone and I'm like locked out of this gate and I'm like, ah, like, you know, what the, what the hell? So I end up climbing this fence and I cut my shorts on the barbed wire and I fall down into the uh, interior area and I, I pass out in the grass. And the next morning, the lady who runs the restaurant found me and she was like, oh my gosh, how did you get in here? We checked for you last night. We couldn't find you. And I was like, oh, I climbed the fence. And she's like, don't do that. And she pointed to a guy with uh, an automatic rifle. <laughs> and she's oh like, my she's like, we have 24-hour security and they don't ever get to shoot anybody. So if he had seen you climbing the fence, he probably just would have shot you. Oh. I'm like, oh my god! Like, oh no! Luckily, they're pretty lazy with the security, so he like he wasn't awake. <laughs> but that would have been like a very rude awakening to uh, a new country. And then that next day, I actually met uh, a guy in town, <clears throat> an uh, Ugandan guy who spoke Chinese, and then he introduced me to a Chinese girl who was doing um, import export. And she and I got along really well. And we ended up having lunch together. And then we had dinner together. And we were at this bar. And my girlfriend showed up. The, the reason I was moving there, right? I was starting to wonder where she was at this story. <laughs> yeah. So, so she shows up. And it's kind of awkward because, um, you know, I've only met her once. <laughs> like, you know. But you moved, to, you moved to Uganda for her. Yeah, and I and I'd, I'd actually spent more time with this girl that day, the export import woman, who I'd had lunch with, and I liked her better. <laughs> so I was like, "Oh man!" <laughs> oh boy! <laughs> the Chinese community was so small that they all knew each other, and so everyone was like, "Oh, Curtin is here to date this one girl. He flew all the way here to date her." So we stayed together for like six days and then broke up, and then I started dating the export import girl <clears throat> and we had to keep our relationship a secret like sneaking around to, like the grocery store <laughs> we, oh my god we'd, we'd see a chinese person and we'd like split up and hide in like the vegetable section <laughs> it was kind of fun it was like it was like a james bond like international uganda china love drama mystery <laughs> how long did you have to keep this a secret Oh, just a few weeks. And then we told everybody, we're like, oh, yeah. But then it was really awkward because 
um, I would be with my girlfriend, the the export import girl. And, you know, like six months later, we would be having dinner with a Ugandan person. And they would say like, Curtin, what brought you to Uganda? And I was like, oh, I met this Chinese girl and I flew here to be with her. And he would say, oh, you two are so romantic. I'm like, not her. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. It's, it's her friend. <laughs> what a start to Africa. <laughs> How long did you end up living in Uganda? Two years. That's quite a while. Yeah, it was... Uh, like everything, you know, you go through cycles and you enjoy stuff and then you get sick of stuff and then you enjoy it again. Um, my The beginning was an amazing honeymoon period. Um, my 10th day there, I met the minister of investments. How did you meet him? In his office at the parliament building <laughs> and uh, had to go through security and, and all that. He was the deputy minister of finance, who was like one of the you know top five most powerful people in the country what had happened was that chinese speaking ugandan guy that i met on my second day he had some kind of shady contacts and the new prime minister that had just come in um had an old buddy who was this you know friend of a friend of a friend through the contact i had and he had this shady idea to make an export import bank of uganda that would be funded by the government and then the Chinese and the Russians would invest in this land. Uh, and then, you know, we would run an export-import bank, supposedly to help Ugandan export uh, companies. But what was really happening was he already had Chinese investors and a Russian investor who were basically just going to dump money in this land um, to kind of launder it. So it was, you know, like just, just taking cash. And then the Ugandan guy... Uh, would keep some of it and he promised my friend the Chinese speaker some of it and he he promised me I would get some of it and I was like what <laughs> what's happening but he handed me a card that had my name and it said that I worked for some American government agency and I was like what <laughs> and I, I I got a suit made uh, they gave me money for a suit <laughs> that day we got it tailor-made and <laughs> I go in I have this meeting and he has all these blueprints of this uh, uh, free trade zone, like by the lake. And he's telling the minister all this bullshit. He's like, oh, yes, we're going to do this and that and this and that. And the minister looks at me and he says, well, if America is supporting this, then like I'll sign off on it. I'm like, I am not America. <laughs> oh, my God. I was scared. I was like, yeah, of course we support it. Yep. Yeah, sure. Oh, no. Um, it, didn't end up, it didn't end up going through. The guy was found out to be a scoundrel. Um, but he did get the Chinese and the Russian money. I had to meet to these two Russian guys at a casino, and they were just gambling all day. Uh, and one guy had a briefcase handcuffed to his wrist. And I was like, this is like the movies. <laughs> totally like the movies. <laughs> is this when your prison plan started to formulate? <laughs> Yeah, right. <laughs> oh, man. And the funny thing is, well, I ended up in Washington, D.C. a few months later uh, for something else. And it just so happened that the African export-import like meeting was happening. And I was like, oh, this is hilarious. And so I still had some of my old business cards 
that they had made. And so I, I went to this uh, hotel where it was in DC and I just started hanging out with people from Cameroon and Niger and, uh, you know, Angola. And I was telling them this story about Uganda and they were laughing. They were like, oh yeah, like we, we had some guy launder some money with some Russians as well. And I was like, oh, cool. It was, like, <laughs> it was neat. It was like, I, I knew, you know, I knew the lingo. I could hang out with like this old uh, lady from Senegal with this really colorful dress. She was like 55 and then we were just chatting about government corruption. And she was like, oh yeah, <laughs> back in 83, we, uh, <laughs> you know what this is reminding me of curtain the movie catch me if you can yeah 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 i love that movie <laughs> frank abagnale i think was his name junior yeah yeah junior oh right but it is because like he was a doctor he was a lawyer he was a pilot and a lot of the a lot of the excitement in life comes from the novelty of all these things right like mm, yes. if you're a doctor performing your first surgery, you know, having a team of people to hand you scalpels and hearing your name on the intercom, like Dr. Pierce, you know, please come to proctology, you know, whatever. That's exciting. But if you do that for 30 years, it's not as exciting. It's not like, oh, I can't wait to uh, go into surgery today. You know, you do it because it's a stable source of income and you're too afraid to do something else like become an artist or, a, you know, a, a pro skateboarder. Um, but for the people who don't care how much money they make or they have a low self-worth or they just have a very um, high, you know, thrill uh, for, for um, adrenaline or something like that, those people turn over more often. Like, yeah, let me, let me live in Uganda. And like uh, we got attacked by these teenagers on election night. The whole country was in lockdown. The power was out. Social media was blocked. And these kids are running on the street, like, you know, with a knife and just attacking people. My roommate got attacked. We had like chased these kids away. And your heart rate is like, but as soon as it's over, it becomes a great story. And you're like, wow, <laughs> like, I'm so glad that happened. And I didn't die. <laughs> like, I don't, wow. I don't want it to happen again. But I'm glad that it happened. Um, yeah. And you realize that I would, I would rather keep living this kind of life, never being successful, never being famous, but always chasing, you know, the next thing, like down the, down the path, rather than, uh, you know, trading it all in for a stable, secure, hot meal every day for the rest of my life. Uh, I just don't see I just don't see quantity as the goal. I think quality is underrated. People talk like they want quality, but every decision they make is for quantity. They want more money, more amounts of money. They want more time on earth. Who cares how much time you have on earth if you're not doing anything with it? You're like a zoo animal. Oh yeah, you're magnificent to the viewer, but your life sucks. <laughs> like you're just stuck in a cage. Like I would rather live out in the wild for a week than live in a zoo for a year. Yeah. It's funny that you say that because today was the day we were supposed to go to Africa burn. Oh my gosh, it is the 27th. Yeah. So that was, you know, one big thing we were planning together after Nomad Cruise. We were going to go with the group and yeah, it was meant to be today out in the desert. Oh, that's right. You were going to be my roommate in April. 
Yeah. Because they wanted to yeah. get that expensive it place. Was... And I was like, uh, <laughs> have these. <laughs> yeah. I think maybe for a moment we should talk about our Corona challenge that oh, we did yeah. together. How much we could drink. This last month. The... Oh, that one. Yeah. <laughs> Because as as we just said, like we were going to be in Africa this past month. That was our original plan with a group of people from the Nomad Cruise and didn't happen, yeah. as we all know. Um, but uh, I asked you about joining a Corona challenge. And what what was your what what is what was your goal for the month? Well, yeah, you uh, you started this a bit before I did. And when we were planning Africa Burn. I was also planning an event I was going to host at, right afterwards in Mallorca. So every day I was super busy, you know, getting excited, trying to put together the building materials for Africa Burn and talking in our group about, you know, different events to do. And as soon as everything was canceled, I kind of went into a tailspin. And from the 6th of March until the 19th, I got nothing done. I was just in bed all, all day awake at night, shuffling around outside, watching Netflix, just being boring and doing nothing. Which, as we've heard from your stories, you are not a boring person. That is not <laughs> normal for you by any stretch yeah. of the, of the I, imagination. I was having a pity party. It was like the fourth time I've tried to go to South Africa. It's always like getting canceled. <laughs> yeah, I was like, like so on. excited to go for my first time. Yeah. It's going to happen. It's going to happen in the I future. But so when you when you suggested this Corona challenge, I was like, oh, this is perfect. This is what I need. I need like outside motivation to do the things I want to get done every day. And in the past, I tried challenges like I'm going to drink coffee, you know, before 8 a.m. Or I'm going to do 20 push-ups every day. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to go big. I'm going to I'm going to do as many things as possible and really try to push because I have nothing else to do all day. <laughs> I might as well, you know, just fill it up with all these challenges. So I have about, I don't know, 32 things on the list uh, that I try to do every day. <clears throat> yeah, I think like we, we kind of said, like, of course, whatever goal, whatever plan you want to achieve this month, it's it's up to you. And then I invited you to use Trello with me, which I didn't quite know how we were going to use it when I sent you the invite. But <laughs> It's great. Like we, I, we've been writing what we accomplish like every day yeah. in some detail. And I like how when I don't, when I don't write anything for the day, you email me and you're like, where's your entry? <laughs> Did you accomplish your goal? Yeah. I, I always picture you're at some like fancy party, drinking champagne, having sex with celebrities. And like, we're just too busy to <laughs> update your Trello board. That's exactly what's happening when I don't every single time. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, oh, she, uh, you know, she's so irresponsible. I, I spent Friday night at a friend's house. We were playing the board game Pandemic. Ah, and, ah uh, very fitting. I realized it was three in the morning and I was at his place and I didn't have my computer with my Trello uh, shortcut on it. And I was like, uh-oh, I, I didn't post tonight. You know, like maybe... Maybe she thinks I'm at a party with a bunch of famous celebrities. I definitely thought you'd left some lockdown and gone out onto the street somewhere and got distracted. The, the challenges are good, though. I think um, a lot of people know that they should improve themselves. They feel ashamed of something <laughs> yeah, that they've done. Uh, and, and they're trying to use this time to be better. I don't know how many people are 
accomplishing that. <laughs> but it's it's good. It's good that we all kind of have this reset period. Like for me, I started writing a book that I've had notes on for 14 years. And it uh, you know, I've written 40,000 words since April 1st. So it feels good like to actually get it on paper and in a proper order and I've been working out a lot. I went from 20 push-ups up to 100. Um I bought some of those rubber bands, you know, to use at home and uh it's 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 good. I have to say like I've learned the power of having an accountability partner this month and I'm so grateful to you for that because I've never worked out 5 days a week in my life and that was my goal was like 20 minutes minimum 5 days a week and I have done it. I'm in week 5 now. You said like this reset period has been beneficial in some ways because for example I've never been able to run as far as I've run recently because I've, I've just had consistency in one place. And it's been a, nice to feel that again, I have to say. What are you up to these days, Curtin, with your, like, so you've had so many jobs, you've, you've only told us about a few, but what is your current thing that you're working on? Yeah, um, I've got a few side projects, um, things like Reinform, where we're fighting misinformation with uh, technology. So we're making chatbots and scrollers um, to kind of collect uh, fake news and misinformation. And then we're attacking it in different ways. So we're making honeypot articles that kind of trick people. Um, you know, we write what they want to hear and then they give us their email and then we say, aha, this person loves bullshit news, <laughs> you know, and we're doing it all over the world. So we're doing it in different languages. Um, that's one project. We've got another project where some of us have land, tracts of land, <laughs> and they're building eco-living spaces. So kind of environmentally friendly, co-living, co-working spaces that people can either visit for a day or a weekend, or you can actually buy a plot of land and build your own house there. So that's fun. Oh, great. Do you have um, a, a, like a website set up for that yet? Yeah, yeah, we've got we've got all sorts of that. And it's all this is all in the present, not in the future. So this is all present stuff. But my main job is um a company I started after Nomad Cruise 7 uh with a couple of other cruisers. Uh it's a Dutch company here in the Netherlands. It's called Inkside Out Apparel. We make embroidered uh custom embroidered t-shirts and dress shirts for people with tattoos. We stitch your tattoo on the outside of the shirt. So basically the image on the shirt matches the one on your skin underneath. So ink side out, haha. -ha. I love that, how is it going? Uh, it's going well, we actually have a business call in five hours from now. Uh, our accountant is in the north of the country and our investor is in Amsterdam, I'm in Utrecht. So we have calls. Uh, we've made the first four shirts we're about to make the next 30 and we need to scale up. Uh, we're not going to make enough money until we can scale and do about, you know, a couple hundred a month, but it's very exciting. It's, it's amazing to, especially with tattoos, cause it's two steps, right? Step one, get the tattoo. Step two, get a shirt made. So I've had a, uh, a tattoo on my, my chest for a few years and I remember getting it. And I remember the artist and his girlfriend, and I was in Lebanon, uh, in uh, Beirut. 
And I remember, you know, beach and the bicycles and all that, you know, it was Easter weekend and all that. And then when I got the shirt made, the same image was stitched on the front of the shirt and you could touch the, the thread and, you know, the nice tight stitching and you're like, ooh, nice. And, you know, and then the shirt had all these paisleys on it. And then you put the shirt on and the image rests directly over the ink and it just feels like an extension of the body. It's really cool. Like it's a really weird experience, but I really enjoyed it. Um, so I can't wait to let this same experience happen to hundreds of, of people around the world. And uh, especially in Japan, we're going to be huge in Japan. We're going to have a whole Japanese division because, you know, with showing off your tattoos in public being taboo, we really think that um, these like business shirts, button up collared shirts, long sleeve with the tattoos on the uh, on the on the arms or the back, that's going to be, you know, something else. So we're, we're looking forward to uh, to move into Japan excited about that but uh, it's just really cool it's cool to put a company together you know it's it's very rewarding and it just happened from brainstorming right you were brainstorming on the nomad cruise 7 with a couple people we were at a bar in brazil and i saw a scottish guy and he one of our friends he sat down and he had like um a star he looked like a sailor jerry kind of tattoo star uh, printed on his shoulder on the shirt. And I said to him like, hey man, you should have a tattoo of a star on your shoulder. And that way your shirt can match the tattoo. And he was like, yeah, that'd be cool. And I'm like, yeah, it would. <laughs> and then I started thinking about it and I was like, that would be really cool. Like <laughs> I should start a company. Do you have photos of the first couple of shirts on the website? Oh, um, I have photos. I could uh, I could put them on the website. <laughs> We just got the photos in last week. It'd be great if you could get those up before we this podcast goes live. I'm sure people would love to see it. How how at the moment can you order a shirt? How does that process work? You can just send me an email. Because every shirt has to be custom. Yeah, so you have to send photos of all your tattoos. We'll help you with the photos because some people are really crap at understanding what we need. We can't make an image if we can't see it. <laughs> so... If you have a sleeve tattoo, we need we need more than one photo so we can see the back of the the, the sleeve. <laughs> um, also, if you want to send photos of your body, feel free. Uh, even if you don't have a tattoo, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> we had a we had a woman who has a tattoo on the side of her breast, and she was like, uh, you know, oh, do you need a picture of of my breast? And I was like, only the part with the tattoo on it. <laughs> like, like, I mean, <laughs> well, like we're not gonna we're not gonna say no if you send us a breast photo, but it's not necessary. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I have a lot of questions about yeah. this business. Are you doing Are you doing pants? Are you doing tattoos anywhere on the body? Or <laughs> we 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 want to we want to expand into pants and socks and uh, hoodies and hats later. But we want to start out with shirts and be kind of known as the the shirt um, tattoo clothing company. Because right now, if we try to go into pants, then it's, you know, we got to do, how do we stitch over a pocket without going through the pocket? Um, 
and it's you know different sizes and crotches don't look good a lot of people have tattoos around their thighs but their pants are baggier than their their skin right their thighs so they have to stretch the image and it doesn't come off as cool when it's you know stitched up in the crotch a lot of sexy tattoos that women have don't look that sexy on uh clothing because they have the wrinkles and you know stuff like that so it's 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 kind of a work in progress uh we're mainly working with tattoo studios so ideally we'd want people to go to their local their favorite uh tattoo shop and ask their tattoo artist hey can i get a shirt then the tattoo artist would contact us and say we've got a guy who wants a shirt because we actually pay the tattoo artist a commission and the more artists that we work with around the world, the more we can spread our marketing fingers, you know, and uh, and we don't have to look for customers because the tattoo artist uh, will get the customers for us. So that's the kind of relationship we want to build. And we want to listen to the tattoo artists as well. So if they have a suggestion for us, you're like, why don't you do it this way? I'm like, oh, good, good idea. And the shirt is going to match the colors of the tattoo exactly. No, it can be whatever you want. So actually, a lot of people don't want uh, an exact match. So for example, if they have a black tattoo and then a red and you know green tattoo, they will actually choose a yellow shirt with like purple stitching. Okay, interesting. Or they'll get like a black shirt with uh, gold stitching. And it's like, oh, cool. You could do whatever you want. And some people, you know, they get two shirts. You're like, yeah, I want a red shirt and a black shirt. I'm like, okay, awesome. Um, one short sleeve, one long sleeve. It's pretty fun because if you have a sleeve tattoo, you can get it so that the sleeve continues the image that's seen on your arm. And that's oh, kind of fun. Wow, that sounds amazing. I don't have a tattoo, but I'm getting tempted to get one to make a shirt. <laughs> yeah, Tyman said that. Uh, another Dutch photographer from the cruise. Um, he was like really practical. He listened to the story and was like, wow, that sounds like a good idea. He's like, I want to get a tattoo <laughs> just to get the shirt. <laughs> oh, it'd be, it's so interesting. I'm really looking forward to following the progress of this and seeing more shirts come out. What is the website exactly? Inksideoutapparel.com. Okay. Inksideoutapparel.com. Fantastic. So you're now living in the Netherlands on a business visa. What ha- what, I know you were trying to get a visa when the corona situation hit. Yeah. So basically, it's, it's, uh, there's a special Dutch-American treaty that makes it easier for Americans to do business in the Netherlands and stay for a couple of years. The issue is um, the bank, the local municipality, and the national immigration office, uh, oh, and the chamber of commerce the four of those groups don't talk to each other so they all have their own rules it's like we can't give you a stamp unless you have a permit and i can't get a permit unless i have a bank account and i can't get a bank account unless i have a stamp (laughs) it's like (laughs) so i just i just been going in circles the last uh three two three months and the corona uh has extended this a little bit but they say yeah like hopefully you'll get your your permission in may or june to stay for two years. And I'm like, yeah, but by June, I will have already been here six months <laughs> like illegally. <laughs> so we'll see. 
But the funny thing is right now they can't deport me because my country doesn't allow flights from Europe. (laughs) (laughs) These are crazy times. These are such crazy times. What are your plans after this? I mean, I know none of us know where we're going and when, but what would you like to do in the future? Well, I mean, every year I travel someplace new, but that was just kind of not by design. That just happened. Uh, This year, I really want to get this business uh, up and running. Like I said, we need to, we need to scale up, um, which means we need to hire people under me and then train them. So I need to learn a lot more about the software on the embroidery machine so I can train uh, other people. And then hopefully we can hire some interns and I can train them up during the summer and the fall. So I may be here quite a while. Um, I was planning on going on Nomad Cruise uh, 12 in November, but that's not going to happen. So I don't know. <laughs> I'm, I'm in the Netherlands until further notice. Wow. Well, it's. I think it's so great that you have such an amazing project that you're working on there. This business sounds really interesting. And yeah, I'm sure that you're, are you able to do to make a lot of progress with it while you're stuck at home? Um, the home thing is no problem. We have a new office in Amsterdam. It's a co-working space. Is that the right word? No, it's a maker space. <laughs> so it has all these like wood cutting machines and like laser engravers and has stitching machines. And all of the equipment is free as long as you pay rent in one of the offices. So we've been trying to get our office set up. And as soon as we do, then it's open 24-7. So I could go stitch at midnight uh, if I wanted to. Um, And so we had to wait on the bank, the company bank account, which needed my tax information for being a foreigner. So that took a while and, and that's finally open now. So, so that's good. But the Corona hasn't slowed us down at all because, um, you know, we're an online business. Uh, what has been bad is that it, all the tattoo shops are closed. So we were going to basically work from the tattoo shops, talk to customers as they came in and talk to the artists, but we haven't been able to do that. I hope that you can get that going soon and that we all get back to normal as soon as possible. Nah, screw normal. Let's let's do better than that. You know, I don't want to go back. What is your vision for all of us going forward, Curtin? Well, like, like think of it. Like, if you were if you were a, a mom with a job and two kids in school, you would go to work, you'd come home, you know, kiss your husband, like boring. You know, <laughs> say hi to your kids, ask them about school. They're playing video games. You take off your shoes, you know. Like relax a bit, have dinner, clean up, go to bed, watch Netflix. Like if that's normal for you, then that died earlier this year. You can say goodbye to that life. You know, you can always go back to that. You know how to do that. After Corona, you should take the chance, carve out a new life. You know, like every day before work, think of one memory from your past like your sexy teenage years on roller skates or you know kissing on top of a mountain when you're 22 years old think of something thrilling from your past and then at lunch every day try something new at, at the office listen to a podcast in spanish even if you don't speak spanish you know 
or like put your socks on on you know different socks on mismatched socks and like just just have have a bit of fun with life and get creative and see where your mind naturally goes because you may have all these problems that you didn't even know about you weren't even aware of them but as soon as you let your mind uh you know you give it permission to kind of walk around and explore it's going to find things and it's going to fix them it's going to be like you know, how come you never have date night with your husband? Like, I don't know. We just don't have time for it. All right, we'll make time for it. You know, like it has to be one spontaneous date every month. You know, just just improve your life. You know, you're in charge. Get things that you want from your life. Send the kids away for a year. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) It'll be like that year in boarding school. And, you know, they may learn like how to roll a joint or how to be independent, or maybe they hate it and then they miss you and they, you know, they spend more time with you when they come back. (laughs) But I don't know, like, shake it up. I like what you said earlier about this being a time of reset. I think you're right. We have the chance to completely change our lives if that's what we want to do. You always have that chance. I think people forget about that. Exactly. Yeah. Like, that's why my favorite holiday is New Year's Eve, because the day is not special. It's just another day. We're basically celebrating the calendar changing from one day to the next, which happens literally every day. <laughs> so there's no like there's nothing fancy about it. But we put a lot more importance on uh, our our responsibility to choose our own life on that one night. Well, you could do that any time, but collectively we decide this is the day for change. I could be a better person. I could be happier. I could be healthier. Like, yes, you always can. And I think Corona is doing this, you know, over a long period of time, not just one night, but it's saying, hey, here's your chance to start over. Here's your chance to quit your job that you've been furloughed or fired or whatever. Like, you can start something else. You can start your own company. You can do what you love. You can do what you like. You don't have to do what you hate. Um, You know, you can you can get divorced, you can get married, you can whatever. Like <laughs> it's up to you. And we have this fascination with giving away our responsibility because it feels nice not to have to make these big decisions. But we don't realize we're letting other people dictate our happiness. So don't rely on a sports team winning a championship for you to feel good. Don't rely on your significant other to make good choices for the both of you. You know, you need to do that. You need to make good choices for yourself. And I hope a lot of people are realizing uh, this this during quarantine. Yeah, I think people are realizing they're capable of a lot more than they ever thought possible by having to make up all this stuff as they go along day after day. If you had one piece of advice to give people about how to have that courage and start living life like that. If they've never lived like that, how should they start? I mean, it's a big shift. I mean, I don't want to get sued by Nike, <laughs> but yeah. I mean, here, here's a story on how I did it because I didn't have courage. I'm not, I wasn't born a courageous person at all. I was a shy, scared little crap in the back of the class, you know? <laughs> so I was living in Chicago And I had a crap job. It was door-to-door sales for office supplies in the winter in Chicago, right? It's like February. 
It's a terrible job. And I was living on my stepbrother's wooden floor. So, you know, not the greatest, most luxurious uh, life. And I had dropped out of school a second time. So I had no bachelor's degree. And I got another spam email. <laughs> you see a pattern. It said, fly to Hong Kong for $600. Well, I only had about $1,000. And I had this crap job. And I said, you know what? I want to quit my job. And I want to fly to Hong Kong for three weeks. That's really what I wanted to do. I had never been to Asia. And I was super excited, you know, like kung fu movies or tall buildings with lights and, you know, dim sum and I don't know, rickshaws. I had no idea what to expect. But I was scared of quitting my job because, you know, then I wouldn't have any money when I got back. But one thing I told myself was I'm smart enough not to starve to death. There's not going to be a moment where I run out of ideas and I just shrivel up on the floor. So that gave me the confidence that I wasn't going to die. And I was like, okay, I would rather take a chance on this, but I still didn't have the courage to buy the ticket. So what I did was I went on the website, I, I set up the ticket, you know, the date, the time, I put in my credit card information, and then I got drunk. <laughs> I, got, I, had, I got like a bottle of vodka, and I put on some dance music, and I was just in my socks by myself, dancing in the living room, thinking about Hong Kong. Like, oh yeah, Hong Kong, here we go. And as soon as I had the liquid courage to go ahead and buy a non-refundable ticket, you know, I had to refresh the page, retype in my, my credit card details, and I hit purchase. And I was like, woo, I did it, woo. And then I passed out, and I woke up in the morning, and I, and I had forgotten what I had done. And I checked my email, and it says, your confirmation number is, and I was so excited. And I was like, ah, I did it. I can't believe I did it. So I went to work and I told my boss, I'm quitting. I'm flying to Hong Kong in like three days, you know? <laughs> and he's like, you need two weeks notice. I was like, all right, then fire me because I'm leaving in three days. And that's, that's what you do. You just got to just do it. Like there, there isn't a magic way to do it. Just do it somehow. Like do it. Um, how do you do a hundred pushups? You get in the pushup position and you do one pushup. And then eventually you do 99 more. Maybe you feel bad for wasting the money for someone else. They feel bad for lying to somebody or, well, I quit my job for no reason. I might as well go. You know, it's different for every person. So just do it somehow. Like get on the plane and fly there. Um, if you want to, you know, be a better parent, I don't know, just follow your kid around until they get weirded out and slam the door in your face. <laughs> like, just, just try something, right? Um, ask them strange questions. Maybe they'll open up to you. Uh, be honest with them. You know, I don't know. But you, you can't just wait around and read 100 books and hope that somehow you become enlightened. I'm a big believer uh, in empiricism. Like, you learn through experience because... There's so much shit going on all the time. It's very hard to get a clear picture of what's happening. But your brain does an amazing job of subconsciously picking up on all these clues and cues in the world. So keep having experiences. Keep putting yourself out there um, and build up this willpower, right? Like those people that say, do something difficult every day. I hated that because 
it's like why not be why not be comfortable and enjoy your life why would i want to stress myself out but it's actually been really wonderful because it turns out you're building up a muscle to do difficult things and when you really want to do something that turns out to be difficult you're going to have the power to do it whereas the comfortable people are just going to have a pity party oh i wish i could do that i wish i could be like that and it's like well you could <laughs> you could have been <laughs> Uh, thank you so much, Curtin, for sharing all of your stories and all of your wisdom through experience. It's been so interesting to talk with you. Yeah, I mean, I, I think all of our conversations are like this. This is just the first recording. Yeah, we finally finally hit that button. <laughs> Curtin, thanks again for a truly inspiring interview and such an important reminder that we are the ones in control of our lives. And at the end of the day, we are the ones who get to decide what to do next anytime, anywhere. I really hope you enjoyed Curtin's wit and inspiring approach to life. I especially liked when he said, whoever pretends like they know what's happening usually gets to do more things, which is a great way to force yourself into attaining more confidence and trying things you may not have previously felt comfortable doing. Sometimes fake it till you make it really is the best step towards finding that next big thing in life. If you've been feeling stuck during this global pandemic and lacking in motivation, I would also encourage you listeners to find an accountability partner, as I did with Curtin, and set some specific goals that you can track and help achieve together. It is a powerful way to stay on track in these difficult times. Also, if you're interested in getting a shirt to display your tattoo, or getting a tattoo to then display on your shirt, I've put the link to InksideOutApparel.com on the SchoolOfTravels.com website, along with the Instagram account with the same name. You can contact Curtin through the site or follow him at GoCurtin on Instagram. Until next time, listeners, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay tuned. Thanks for listening to the School of Travels podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love for you to subscribe and leave us a rating wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks to The Sam Chase for allowing us to use their song, In a Perfect World. Don't forget to join us next week for another episode, and remember to always let travel be your teacher. If you keep your options open, there are places you will go. They will treat you like the kings and queens your parents thought you'd be when you were born. You'd see it all with your head up standing tall, and you'd look back and think it's funny how you spent your time and money in this Living in this perfect world